I have to say this to you. Last week in the first service, I did great. In the second service, I completely forgot. I mentioned that Lisa Turkhurst a year and a half ago got a divorce, and I had the rest of the story, and I just looked up at the clock and lost my ever-loving mind, and I forgot to say the rest of the story. They got remarried this last week. And so Kelsey made a beeline up here, and she goes, hey, you know they got remarried? I said, yeah, I have it right here. I didn't say it. So please forgive me, Lisa, and, and your husband. Um, great, great story of God's faithfulness through the valleys, through the storms of life. And, and if you want to go and read about that, she's the president of Proverbs 31 Ministries, and I just totally blew it. So anyway, I wanted to do that. Okay, now I want you to stand up. We're going to stand in honor of reading God's word today, and uh, then we're going to jump into this. This is from Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 23. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but the marriage took place while she was still a virgin. She became, excuse me, but before the marriage took place while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet, Look, the virgin will conceive, she will give birth to a son, they will call him what? Which means what? God is with us. Now, I'm studying the book of Nehemiah, and I just got to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, they had not read the, the, the word of God in a long time. So they all came to the, the outdoor temple area, and they stood up, and Ezra the priest read to them for five hours. I thought, if they can do that for five hours, you can stand during the sermon for 30 minutes today. Are you ready? Sit down. I know better. I know better. Sit on your nice, comfy chairs. Put your bootes down because I don't want to hear you whine 30 minutes. I mean, come on. Anyway, now um, we've been studying the incarnation. What does that mean? And so I I decided to help you understand I was going to go to the source of all wisdom, Wikipedia. Because I knew Wikipedia would simplify this concept. And here, word for word from Wikipedia. In Christian theology, the doctrine of the incarnation holds that Jesus, the preexistent divine logos, koine, Greek for word, and the second hypostasis of the Trinity, God, the Son, and Son of the Father, taking on human body and human nature, was made flesh and conceived in the womb of Mary, the Theotokos, Greek for God-bearer, Latin, mater dei, which means literally mother of God. The doctrine of the incarnation then entails that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. His two natures joined in hypostatic union. I went to seminary for four years. I took all kinds of theology classes. I actually had one professor who wrote the book on theology. I have no idea what that, what that means, what Wikipedia means, all right? So I want to I simplify things for you today right before we celebrate uh, Jesus' birth. And here's what it is, Simplif- simplification. The incarnation means God himself became human. God himself became human. How do we get this? Where do we get this? In John chapter 1, John was an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry. John tells us this beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. It's a capital W, and you're going to see in a minute, we're not talking about the Bible, we're talking about a person. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how we know this was a person. Then it gets even more personal. He The Word was with God in the beginning. Through Him, the Word, all things were made. Without Him, the Word, nothing was made that has been made. Then jump down to verse 14. 
And here it becomes intensely personal. You know exactly who it is. The word became flesh. He became incarnate. God became incarnate and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. I'm an eyewitness. We, the disciples and others, hundreds, thousands of people are witnesses. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, here's a picture of my awesome grandson. Yeah, come on. There we go. My awesome grandson. Now, um, a few weeks ago, before Thanksgiving, we were invited to come to his Thanksgiving dinner at his little daycare, at his child care center. So Janie and I drove down, and we got there, and it was so much fun. We spent about 45 minutes, and we ate with him, and it was just a blast, and then we left. A couple of weeks later, we go back, Janie and I go back to celebrate his birthday. Now, this time, he didn't know we were coming. He didn't know we were coming the first time. But we show up at his daycare during his nap. They said, if you'll come right about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it'll be the end of his nap. Waylon doesn't usually sleep as long as the other kids. Come in, and he'll be so excited to see you, and you can take him. And so we did. So we come in, and bedhead, and, and all of this stuff, and he's just kind of stumbling around. It's dark, all the other kids. And he's, you know, he pick, I pick him up, and he kind of looks at me, come out, and we see Amy out there. He looks at her, and then all of a sudden, just like this, a, a, a light went off in his head, and he goes, <laughs> just starts grinning. And we had so much fun the rest of the day. Now, this past Tuesday, so that, all of that happened in a five-week span. This past Tuesday, Caleb texts the family. We have a family uh, text, a little thread that goes on just our family, just the, uh, my immediate Washburn family. Caleb texts all four of us, and he says, as I was dropping my son off at school this morning, he spotted a man. This man had no hair and resembled dad. Waylon lost his, now Caleb put in the, in the message C-R-A-P, but I'm not sure I can say that in church, so I put stuff, I've said it before. Waylon lost, but I put stuff. He thought Pop, uh, Papa was coming to take him home. He said, I want Papa take me home. And then Caleb said he did not want to go to school after that. And I'm telling you, I almost dropped everything to go take that boy home from school. He wanted his papa with him, right? Well, as I was thinking about this sermon, I thought about this, this verse in Proverbs 17, 6. Grandchildren are the crown of old men. Now, I have to say, I'm an old man. Um, I played golf this last week with a couple of men in their 80s. They kept telling me I'm a young man. When I would hit the ball, I go, must be nice to be young and strong. And we had a 23-year-old who's young and strong playing with us. I'm going, he's the young one. But when you're 80, it's all relative. Okay, I'm an old man. But the scripture says grandchildren are the crown of old men. The scripture knows what it's talking about, right? And the glory of sons is their fathers. When Caleb was little, he actually, I, I had this in a sermon years ago. He actually, when I walked in one day, he, was, he wasn't much older than Waylon, a little bit older because he could form complete sentences other than, I want Papa to take me home. And he said, my hero. I almost lost it. And, and so the glory of sons is their fathers, but you want to talk about a crown. That's grandchildren are to old men. We're old, aren't we, John? Yes, thank you. He's two months older than me, and I never, never let him forget that. <clears throat> I hope one day to get to tell my grandson, I pray for my grandson's salvation. Janie and I pray almost every night, God, we pray he would come into the kingdom of God at a young age, that he would serve you all the days of his life. And I intend to tell him a whole lot of stuff. Our, our, uh, our stockings on, this, on the mantle are all Christmas church um, Bible stories, and so his is, is Noah, uh, no, his is uh, 
Jonah, Jonah and the whale, and actually Janie made a little flap where you can see Jonah inside the whale, and you can take him out when he spits him up. You know, I'm going to tell him all that stuff, but I want to have, I'm going to have with Waylon some conversations that might go like this, and I want to, um, I want to share this imaginary conversation. What kind of conversation? that will help us and might help my grandson understand this idea of the carnation, get a better grip on what it meant for Jesus to come to earth. So let's imagine that God and Jesus are hanging out in heaven and God is explaining to Jesus what it will cost him to come to earth to become human uh, and all of those things. Now, what kind of conversation is it? Which means you're going to have to use your what? Imagination, like SpongeBob. I go all the way up. Imagination. Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, too bad. Imagine God the Father says to God the Son, Jesus, Son, this is, um, this is your assignment should you choose to accept it. This is your mission, Son. <laughs> I'm going to send you to earth to fulfill my perfect will to be a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Since humans cannot save themselves, you will have to go and live a sinless life. You'll have to be perfect, and then you'll become sin for them so that they might become the righteousness of God through you. I've chosen for you the woman who'll be your mother. You're going to love her. She's a teenage girl. She's completely devoted to our will. She's pure in every way, not like those other girls. You know, some of them play spin the bottle, truth or dare, seven minutes in heaven. By the way, I did seven minutes in heaven one time when I was like in fourth grade, and, and I stood in there and looked at the wall and looked at the girl and looked at the wall, and I was like, this is not heaven. Anyway, last time I ever did that. <laughs> she's pure in every way. Um, she's a virgin. She's going to be an amazing mom. You're also going to have an earthly dad. I'm your heavenly father, but you're going to have an earthly father. His name is Joseph. He's a good man, but to be real honest, he's just not going to get as much airtime as Mary. Joseph's a great guy, but he's going to be your stepdad, and we just aren't going to talk to him about him much. Now, you're going to spend nine months in Mary's womb, and then she's going to push you out into a cruel, cold world. And Jesus is like, hey, hey, the first time he speaks, couldn't, couldn't we maybe do that stork thing that the, that the people are going to talk about? God laughs. Jesus laughs because this is an imaginary conversation. Um, Jesus knows this, but God tells him anyway, you have to be born of a virgin because you're not going to have an earthly father to help you be conceived. This way, you'll not inherit the sin nature of any earthly father, but you'll still be born of a woman. The first man we're going to create, his name is Adam. He's going to fail miserably. And then when you're born, we're going to call you the second Adam, and you're going to not fail. You will not fail. You will have, you'll have an earthly mom, but you'll have a heavenly father. That means you'll be completely human and completely God at the same time. This will make you different than any person who has ever lived. This will make you different than any religious leader who will ever live. For hundreds of years your birth, uh, before your birth, the people who love us will predict that you are going to be born at a certain time in a certain place. It's going to be awesome. And then at just the right time, we are going to write these words to the church at Galatia in Galatians chapter 4. But when the right time came, what time? the right time. I don't even have time to get into all that, but exactly when God wanted Jesus to be born, he came. God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Some of you pray, Papa God. Some of you say, Daddy God. That comes from this. Abba means dad. Now you are no longer a slave. You're God's own child. Most people will expect you to be born in a palace because you're a, the Messiah, the Son of God, but you're going to be born in a stable. I've selected this nice cave next to some smelly animals, and Jesus smiles, and he says, I get it. Being placed in a manger will show everyone that the Messiah didn't come for the rich and the powerful and the religious, but for the common and the ordinary. God says exactly. And he says, before you're ever born, 
You need to know that every demon in hell will hate you and try to destroy you. In fact, we're going to go back thousands of years and, every, and the demons in hell will try to destroy Jews, everyone who's related to you so that you'll never be born. When they fail at that, they're going to try to kill you right after your birth. Some wise guys are going to show up at Herod's palace and, and they're going to ask this in Matthew 2, 2 and 3. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And, and when they say king, oh, that's, that's bad. They, they're going to say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard that someone else was king, you need to know King Herod was one of the most insecure human beings who's ever lived. And he killed children. He killed his sons. He killed his wives. If they fought, they might try to take his kingdom. So when he hears about another king that's going to be born king of the Jews, he tries to wipe them all out. Jesus, before you have the ability to defend yourself, Herod is going to issue a command that all the baby boys born in Bethlehem, your, your birthplace, be killed under the age of two. He's going to figure out when the star first appeared, and he's going to kill all the baby boys trying to take you out. Your family is going to have to flee to Egypt, which means we're going to have to create a really, really fast donkey. Ride a It's one of my favorite parts of that video that we showed last week. Jesus, you're going to have supernatural powers, which means when, when they give you a bath and you don't want to take a bath, you have the power to part the waters and sit on a dry tub. Take a bath, son. Take a bath. If your dad wants to feed you broccoli, you're going to have supernatural power to change the broccoli into vanilla cake, chocolate cake, whatever your favorite cake is going to be. Just eat the broccoli, son. Don't abuse your power. Now, side note, do you think Jesus had perfect attendance at school? Did he make straight A's? Did all the teachers love him and all the other students hate him? Because Jesus was the curve buster in citizenship, penmanship, art, and PE. I mean, I was pretty good in PE, but I sucked at citizenship. I couldn't keep my mouth shut. Y'all can't believe that. Penmanship, I could not do what? Art, oh my gosh. Jesus was the curve. Anyway, okay. Back to the imaginary conversation. When you grow up, I've chosen for you to be a carpenter just like your dad. You're not going to make much money, but that's okay because you're going to love serving people. Even though you'll, you will be perfect and sinless people in your hometown, will disrespect you openly. That won't stop you from doing my will. There'll be this huge irony because even though you make with work, work with wood to, to make things, there's going to be a day people will take wood, form a cross, and nail you to it because they can't stand you. <laughs> you're going to be able to speak words and change things. And in your very first miracle I've chosen for you to do is change water into wine at a wedding. And Jesus says, Dad, my first miracle is going to be a party trick. And God says, yes. And Jesus says, why are we changing water into wine? And God says, it's because we're going to mess with the Baptists. <laughs> for thousands of years, as long as there are Baptists, they will debate whether it's alcoholic or non-alcoholic. I have heard that debate. I've read that debate. We're going to mess with them, son. Jesus, you're going to open blind eyes. You're going to heal deaf ears. You're going to raise the dead, and still people will hate you. Some people are going to call you a liar. Some people are going to call you a lunatic. Some people are going to say you're a drunkard, and all you do is go to parties. Some people are going to say you even work for the devil himself, but you're going to love them anyway. The more you love, the more they're going to hate you, but you're going to love them anyway. You'll befriend prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors, the outcasts of society, the people that other religions reject. And when the devil attacks you, you're going to fight back with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. You'll choose 12 men to help you with your mission. They will be your best friends until things get really bad. And then every one of them is going to betray you. They're going to run away and hide. One of them will actually turn you over. He will identify you with a kiss on the cheek and turn you over to the men who are going to nail you to that cross. Most of the other 11 will run and hide. But the one, the one with the most leadership potential 
will deny openly, publicly three times that he even knows you, and he'll say that within seeing distance of you. You'll actually turn and see him, and the Bible says he will go off and weep bitterly because you said he would deny you. He said, no, I'll never deny you, and he denied you. On this night, on the night before all this happens, you'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane and you'll pray the most intense prayers of your life. And in that time, while you're there, you'll get a glimpse of what it's going to cost you. And you'll be overwhelmed and you're going to say, Dad, isn't there another way? But you already know. You know there's not another way. You've got to experience what it feels like, what my silence feels like, so that from the human perspective, you'll understand Um, that there's a difference between feeling abandoned by God and being abandoned by God. And you'll actually cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another translation is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And for thousands of years, as long as there are humans, they will go back to this and say, even the Son of God knew what it felt like to think that God had abandoned him, but God had not abandoned him. And in that moment, you will pray one of the most difficult but God-honoring prayers in history. Dad, not my will, but your will be done. They will treat you horribly that night. They will beat you with their fists. They will take a cat of nine tails and they will whip you 39 times till your flesh is falling off. They will cram this crown of thorns down on your brow and then they'll nail your hands and your feet to a Roman cross and they're gonna make fun of you He saved others. Let's see if he can save himself. The very people you created will hurl insults at you. And you're going to look up from that cross in the midst of that and you're going to say, Dad, please forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. You'll have the power at that moment to call a thousand angels to come to your rescue, but but you're not going to do it because you knew before we ever formed a person that this is the way we would have to pay for their sins. And the last thing you're going to say on that cross is, it is finished. And the devil, your enemy, will think that he's won for three days. But after three days, you're going to rise from the dead never to die again. And over a period of 40 days, you're going to, you're going to show up and, and meet people, different groups of people. And at one of those times, there are going to be 500 witnesses that Jesus is alive And then at the end of those 40 days, you're going to ascend back into heaven and we're going to send the Holy Spirit not just to empower believers, but to live on the inside of believers. And the very last thing you're going to say on this earth before you come back to your throne in heaven is this in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you. There's Emmanuel, but he adds another word. What is that word? I am with you always, always, even to the end of the age. This name that we've been looking at, Emmanuel, means God is with us. His coming at Christmas was to remind us that even when people hate Jesus, he'll love them. Even when people turn away from Jesus, he will pursue them. There's a couple of reasons you need to understand why Jesus came to that manger. And here they are. Number one, he came to seek and to save lost people. He didn't come for people who thought they were already found. He came for lost people. He came to make dead people alive. The Bible says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And so the only God of heaven, the the second member of the hypostasis, whatever that means, had to come to earth to, to make you alive. And then he came to bring abundant life. If you're not living an abundant life, It means you're not following Jesus. This is the only religion where God 
where the God of the religion didn't shout his love from heaven. He showed his love from earth. And this is the difference in religion and Christianity. Every religion, and, and I've studied them all, all the world religions, the Muslims, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, all, of these, all of these religions, every one of them is you have to do this, 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 this. And if you do it just right, then whatever God they serve might pay attention to you. Christianity is the only one, the only God who left his throne in heaven to come die to pay for your sins. That's why we read this in Matthew 1, 21 through 23. And she will have a son and you're to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive. She will give birth to a son and they will call him what? Because that means what? Let me give you a couple of uh, just real quickly, five things about the incarnation. The incarnation was not the beginning of Jesus. Don't you ever let someone tell you that. We read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When the time was right, God sent Jesus to be born of a virgin. Number two, the incarnation shows Jesus' humility. I double dog dare you, triple dog dare you to find any other religion where the king of that religion left his throne to pay for the sins of people who were dying and going to hell. There is not one out there. Number three, the incarnation was predicted hundreds of years before Jesus was born. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't random. It was predicted in the Old Testament. And, and, and here's the thing. Um, if you start studying all of the prophecies in the Old Testament, scholars disagree on the number, but somewhere between 200 and 400 prophecies of the Messiah coming happened in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled them all. And the first one, was in Genesis chapter 3. If you want to know where that is, come see me afterwards. The incarnation shows us that Jesus is both God and man, and some people can't grasp this. How can this be? Well, um, the scriptures don't give us the answers to all of our questions. Some things remain mysterious. Look what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. I love this passage. The Lord our God has secrets known to no one, and we are not accountable for the things that are known only to God. But look what it says. We, are, we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. And the last thing about the incarnation is it's necessary for salvation. Now, let me say this. The incarnation of Jesus, God becoming flesh, in and of itself does not save you. You have to accept what he did. But look what Hebrews 2.17 says. For this reason... And they're talking about sin and, and talking about a needing a sacrifice. For this reason, he, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. See, the incarnation makes our religion, Christianity, different than any other. Our God is the eternal God who was born in a stable, not a distant, withdrawing God of all those other religions I mentioned. Our God is a humble, giving God, not a selfish, grabbing God. Our God is a purposeful, planning God, not a random, reactionary God. Our God is a God who is far above us and whose ways are not our ways, not a God we can put in a, in a box and control. Our God is a God who redeems us by his blood, not a God who leaves us in our sin. Our God is the only one who left his throne to rescue his people. Our God is the only one who is named Emmanuel, which means God is with us, and Jesus added that term always. Now, I want to read you a, a, a devotional that, that I get from Max Licato, and I, I got it this week in my email. It says, if we could save ourselves, why would we need a savior? 
Check this out. Jesus didn't enter the world to help us save ourselves. He entered the world to save us from ourselves. Let me say that again because that's deep. Jesus entered, didn't enter the world to help, it, to help us save ourselves. He entered the world to save us from ourselves. And I love this illustration. As a Boy Scout, I earned a life-saving merit badge. The fact is the only people I saved were other Boy Scouts who didn't need to be saved. During training, I would rescue other trainees. We took turns saving each other, but since we weren't really drowning, we resisted being rescued. Stop kicking and let me save you, I'd say. Here's the point. It's impossible to save those who are trying to save themselves. You might save yourself from a broken heart or going broke or running out of gas, but you're not good enough to save yourself from sin. You're not strong enough to save yourself from death. You need a savior. And because of Bethlehem, you have one. Would you bow your heads? I'm just curious today, how many of you would say, I have felt there were times that God has abandoned me? Did you raise your hands? Wow. That's a, that's a whole lot of us. Put your hands down. How many of you would say, I desperately want to know that God is with me? Would you raise your hands? All right, a whole bunch of us. Now, <laughs> a little deeper question. How many of you would say, I want to honor God with everything I am and do? All right, put your hands down. Those people who want to honor God are the only ones who are going to feel the presence of God when you go through the valley of Baca we talked about a few weeks ago, the valley of tears. When we talked about the storms last week, it's only those who are obedient and want to honor God with everything who are going to be made aware of his presence. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands which means if you don't obey his commands, you do not love him. So just right now, two days before Christmas, some of you need to say, God, I have strayed far from you. You pray that in your mind. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my rebellion. And make me aware that you are a God who is with me always. Some of you have never asked Jesus to forgive your sins and lead your life, which is required to be adopted into his family. And the greatest gift you can be offered this year at Christmas is to be adopted into the family of the living God. And so we just say it real simply around here. We say, God, would you forgive my sin and lead my life? And if you pray that prayer, God, please forgive my sin and lead my life. The Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You'll be adopted into his family. Your name will be written in Jesus, the Lamb's book of life. And not only will you have eternity in heaven, you will have an assurance that the God who left heaven, the God incarnate, is with you always. Father, it's my prayer that this Christmas might be different for someone in this crowd or someone who's listening on the internet, that you'll remind them that regardless of what they see, there is a spiritual battle going on and you win. We know you win. But sometimes, God, we get our eyes off of you and we feel like we're losing, which makes us feel like you don't care. Forgive us from that and remind us today, tomorrow, Christmas morning, Remind us that that little baby in a manger, that all of hell tried to stop, came to die for our sins, to be raised 
to life again, to ascend back to heaven in his throne. And, and the one who came not to judge us the first time, but to save us is coming again. And the second time he will come in judgment. God, I pray that we would be ready. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.